Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. You've tuned in to Freedom of Species, Animal Advocacy on the Airwaves. The program is broadcast from 3CR Studios in Melbourne, Australia. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR websites and Freedom of Species has all past podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. My name's Emma Townsend. Lucy's Project, an organisation set up to lift the veil of invisibility from the role of animal abuse in domestic violence through studies and encouraging early intervention, is holding a conference in November. We speak with the creator of Lucy's Project, Anna Ludwig, later in the program. I also sat down with Lisa Craig from Peel Community Legal Services, WA, who, along with photojournalist Richard Wainwright, will be launching their project titled Saving Grace at the conference, using the power of individual stories as their weapons for transformational awareness in our community, they have chosen to illuminate the stories of the domestic violence victims themselves, showing their tightly knitted bonds shared with their companion animals. This will be done through a website portal medium. At the final end of the show, we'll also speak with Chief Executive Officer of RSPCA Victoria, Liz Walker, about the recent government's puppy farm regulations. But firstly, let's hear from Phil Arco from the Link Coalition in the United States. The Link Coalition is a national resource centre on the link between animal abuse and human violence. And this excerpt is from a previous show Freedom of Species did on this subject. 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive and making a difference. The link takes a lot of different forms. In the case of domestic violence, it's a situation where uh, the batterer, who's usually a man, tells uh, the victim, usually a woman, that if she tries to leave, he'll kill her animals, or he actually kills or tortures the animals and warns her that if she acts out uh, or tries to leave, this is what's going to happen to her. And so she and her uh, family are literally being blackmailed emotionally and being held hostage out of fear for what's going to happen to their pets. These are just some of the ways that the link manifests itself. And uh, by focusing on the link, uh, we've actually made much more progress in animal welfare in the last 20 years than I think we've done in the 150 years before that because legislators and human services agencies recognize that there's a human health and safety component to animal welfare we can no longer trivialize it by just saying that it was only a cat or, you know, boys will be boys. There's another component to this, which is getting veterinarians involved. Uh, One of the things that got me started on, on this quest back in the 1980s was discovering that physicians in the United States are mandated to report suspected child abuse, 
But by and large, veterinarians were not uh, mandated to report either child abuse or animal abuse, and that seemed a bit of an incongruity to me. So we're trying to, we're getting veterinarians trained in forensics and how to recognize animal cruelty and abuse and practice management issues in terms of how to take this information and report it to appropriate authorities and then give them immunity from civil and criminal liability for doing so and in some cases mandating that uh, they make the report. So you're saying there that the link can be in that forensic work with vets. They can literally see certain types of cruelty to the animal and they can actually suspect maybe a child abuse. Exactly right. Uh, By training veterinarians about the link and having them recognize that animal abuse is is not a standalone crime and very often involves other abuse going on in the household and to train them to, you know, look for the telltale signs of child abuse. And if, you know, we include them with physicians and other human medical professionals as mandated to report suspected child abuse, that's going to elevate the the status of the veterinary profession uh, to the level of human medical practitioners. And we'll also uh, do a tremendous job of preventing future family violence, both against the animals and the human members of of the family. Animal abuse is the tip of the iceberg. It's very often the first warning of a child or a woman or an entire family in trouble. And animal cruelty investigators, whether they're with an SPCA or a municipal animal control authority or whoever uh, handles a case in a particular area, they could be treated as first responders because very often the neighbors will be much more likely to report an animal abuse case than to report a, a human abuse case. So the animal cruelty is literally the first sign and we're treating this as a you know, potential indicator of current abuse or a potential predictor of future violence against human members of the family. Lisa, can you start by telling us where you work and what's involved in your day-to-day job? Sure. And it's quite topical at the moment as well, too, because of the funding cuts to community legal centres. But that's where I work. So I work in a regional community legal centre in Western Australia based in Mandurah and we service the Peel region. So we're generalist and our day-to-day work involves assisting people access justice, people that would normally not be able to have any kind of legal support. And of course that kind of work intersects um, so beautifully, the human rights work with um, the rights of or other sentient beings as well too. That And that's where, of course, my interest in animal rights came from. With your work, it's mainly dealing with the human animal. So what kind of situations you refer to are you, are you dealing with? What, what kind of clientele? What, what situations, if you can give us an idea? Sometimes people come to us who have never intersected with the justice system before. So they present in a state of anxiety or conflict or breakdown. So they may have intersected in a way that has rendered them homeless or with uh, threat of imprisonment or experiencing severe domestic violence or more simply having trouble with their neighbour that's escalated. Kids with criminal matters, you know, um, parking fines, speeding fines, all of those kinds of things. So we have the whole gamut. Um, 
people coming just knowing, not knowing what to do about their legal situation. I met you last year at the Lucy's Project, the link between domestic violence and animal abuse conference, the first one in Australia. And um, you got up there and, and did a fantastic presentation, a very impressive presentation on a project you're working on called Saving Grace. Before we go into that, in the presentation, it's obviously you have felt deeply uncomfortable with your own capacity for tears. Can you elaborate on this and tell us how there was a science to your sadness? Thank you for asking that question because um, we are in a sadness-denying culture. We live in a culture of putting your best foot forward, being professional, being boundaried and trauma-informed practice tells us that that's not always possible because every single person has their own story. So managing a community legal centre, every single person, the people that work there and the people that come for assistance, every single person is carrying a story and you can't help but intersect with those stories. And my feeling was um, that some stories just... They moved me to tears and I questioned my own capacity for um, compassion and humanity because the narrative is um, be tough. Be tough when you intersect with people in crisis. However, I noticed that I was being moved to tears at times by these stories of strength and resilience so what was it? I was thinking about what is it that really catalyzes that feeling inside me? There's something really powerful that people are telling me over and over and I'm not getting. And so I started to listen with that, the ears of compassion and the ears of um, what is really speaking to me. And it was working with women who had suffered from domestic violence and were living in violent situations when they spoke about the things that had saved them, the things that had um, allowed them to stay strong and be resilient. And the theme in that was about relationship and it was about relationship with their companion animals. And that's when I realised that these stories were just coming up over and over again and there, there must have been a link and in recognising that, I realised that that link, that relationship was vital to women surviving domestic violence. And I wanted, I wanted to know more about it. So, Emma, it's like my sadness and my tears led me to that kind of revelation. It's a... They're beautiful mental footsteps you, you took to forming your project which manifested Saving Grace, you listened for a long time mm -hmm. in your daily job to get to that place. How, how long was that period of time where you really, you know, you said, no, I'm going to stop and really listen to what's going on here? That was a long time. So I had come back from studying peace and conflict transformation in Bangkok and I'd come back into my role. And when I came back into my role, 
I thought, you know, peace and conflict transformation, that's not just for the wars, the violent conflicts that have been fought around the world. They're for the day-to-day conflicts as well, like our understanding of those practices. They come into our lives at a very everyday level. We, I felt we had a war in our hands. I was just like... All these people that are coming in that are in conflict, either in their families or in their personal relationships, what if I put those kind of listening ears on and and actually find out what it is they're telling me? So that process was like about three years after I came back from that course of study. And I was so fortunate because a person that I had studied with is a international photojournalist, Richard Wainwright. And I said to him, you know, this is what I'm saying. Do you, do you think this, this fits into our understanding of peace and conflict transformation? And he said, absolutely, it's got all the hallmarks that we look for in, in violent conflict. Um, let's dig a bit deeper. And so that's kind of where it started, Emma. You are tuned into Freedom of Species and today we are talking with Lisa Craig about a project she co-founded with Richard Wainwright called Saving Grace. Saving Grace illuminates the relationships shared between the non-human animal members of the family with the human uh, victims of domestic violence. After doing your studies in the war and conflict, peace and conflict, sorry, overseas, and coming back, you decided to start Saving Grace. Let's talk about that. Yes, and it's... (sighs) A little bit like the the Christian calendar, you know, before and after, you know. It's like, okay, where was my life before Saving Grace, you know, and where is it now? Because when you talk about transformation um, and the lens that you look at things through and turning things on its head, this is a project that has done that. And um, I'm going to speak... um, about my friend Richard who's partnered me in this project. You know, he's a very resilient conflict journalist and he has followed uh, child soldiers. He's been in Palestine, Mongolia. He has been all over the world where, where he's been capturing images of conflict. And he said, you know, this, this is the toughest gig I've ever done. Wow. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the bravery. I mean, this is also what we have is a galaxy of stars in when we talk about domestic violence and animal abuse. You have women who've been prepared to speak about their experience and you also have um, the theorists, the research and the practitioners working for the benefit of animals. And... What I've discovered in doing this project over the last two years is they have such a great understanding of peace and conflict transformation. You know, they're doing it and they they don't even realise that they're doing it. And that whole idea about power, listening to people who've had the experience and learning from them, because we also live in a culture that wants to fix things up. So enabling people to share their brokenness and be able to be comfortable enough to sit with that and hear all the shadowy, dark parts of that um, is in itself an act of bravery. 
And I'm so fortunate that I've had Richard partner me in that because at times it is a very compelling, challenging and lonely journey. So the nuts and bolts, the hardware of Saving Grace is yourself and Richard sharing these stories of these very brave individuals that have agreed to share their stories. And Richard is obviously using his talent as a photographer in this. Can you tell us about uh, any uh, individuals? Can you share their story with us today just to give us a, a highlight of what Saving Grace is about? There's a range of storytelling mechanisms that we've used and some have been anecdotal stories passed on by practitioners in the field and some have been first-person stories. And there are a couple of stories that will never leave me. There's a a couple of stories that, um, that will... That will just stay with me for a very long time. One particular story, and Richard and I call it the dog butcher story, is about a beloved dog, and that was um, that that belonged to a woman who was experiencing extreme domestic violence, and her partner was a butcher. And her partner, her partner killed the dog. But the way the dog was killed, it was butchered in a way that would have prolonged the dog's agony and sent a very clear message to the woman about what will happen to her if she ever dared leave. That's one story, um, and and that's an image that that stays with you. That's really powerful. And then there's others that are that are lighter about animals who have been relinquished because um, their owners know that they can't keep them safe. And we talked to some lovely police officers, and they were talking about rescuing someone's rabbits and they're in the police car and you know they had the back of the car all filled with these rabbits and they were sort of just jumping around in the back seat because there was just nowhere else for the rabbits to go and they just sort of piled them all in the back of the car. There's also stories about women who've been reunited with their animals because they've been fortunate enough to go into foster care and there's some wonderful programs out there. Not enough Emma but there are some wonderful programs. One story that is a first-hand account was of a woman who was living in a relationship with a violent man and she had a cat and he had a dog and she grew to love the dog Um, and she stayed in the relationship until the dog passed because he said that she could never take the dog with her because it was his dog. So she stayed in that relationship for 12 years until the dog passed away and then she packed up and she left with her cat. Um, That's endurance. That's resilience and endurance. So, yes, 
There's lots of stories, and there are a few. How I see your work and what you're doing is really just illuminating a, a space, a landscape of relationship, which has previously been invisible, and the power that that holds in just hearing these people's stories. Is that where, what you want to show? Like, what's the outcome if you could just elaborate on that more, of saving grace for the general public? Is that what it is, making this relationship visible and therefore it really throws out prior assumptions about why these people aren't leaving or the non-acknowledgement of any profound seriousness of any type of animal cruelty? You're right, Emma, it is invisible. And once people make the link then it becomes visible and then animals become rights bearers in, in themselves. That we can see that, that animals have the right as well to love and safety and self-determination. And yet the legal system is not recognising them in that way yet. Um, when police respond to domestic violence call-outs, they're not looking to see if the animals are okay. When child protection officers go, they, they will often remark that they saw a skinny dog on a chain or they saw a cat, you know, with a, a litter of kittens or a malnourished horse. But that's not in their ambit. And what I'm saying is it is absolutely in their ambit. It's in all of our ambits, if we, if we want to talk about protection of human beings, then we must talk about protection of animals because they're interlinked. One does not exist without the other. And you're right, making that visible is the way to create a space for transformation. Can you just explain what you mean by an ambit in the legal sense as well. Okay, yeah. So in terms of what um, particular officers or agents are required to do, you know, they may be required to uh, make sure that the victim is safe. So they might put a 72-hour order on the perpetrator and remove... It's, it's generally him, remove him from the home. So that's their job. So their ambit, if you like, is to make sure the people are safe. It is an area that you in, it's only really in the last year and a half, two years, that even domestic violence has become more visible and uh, more articulated for the general public to understand. Do you think this area of highlighting the profound relationship we have with animals is following quickly at the, the feet of that, so to speak? Yes, uh, it's so interesting because when people think about the care and protection of animals, you know, they open up in a way that they were previously closed. Um, so sometimes people can harden around the idea of domestic violence and shy away from it. However, when you start to talk to people, and, um, you know, Richard and I have spoken to service organisations, you know, local government, uh, ranges of community organisations, 
the minute you start to talk about the love of an animal, protection um, of pets and companion animals and all, all other animals as well, people soften and they immediately open up their hearts. So from my perspective, it's a way into compassion. And yes, I think the the whole field is absolutely blossoming. You know, we've seen um, the growth of the Animal Justice Party. Who would have imagined a few years ago that um, we would have had that kind of representation, the change in the law with, um, you know, banning greyhound racing, just a sensitivity towards animals as rights bearers. Yep, it's like you've linked... It It really is a undermined powerful force in how we can change society to the society we want to have in many ways, isn't it? It's underexplored. It is, and it has the potential to be so uh, forward-looking, so visionary, and also such a democratising force because every single person can participate in the care and protection of animals um, in a way that not every single person feels able to do um, with domestic violence. Lisa, where can we um, find out more about Saving Grace? Emma, well, we're so fortunate to have the next uh, Lucy's Project conference coming up in Sydney in November, the 5th and 6th. So Richard and I will be there launching the project and... It's a long-form web-based storytelling information portal. So www.mysavinggrace.com and we hope then once that's launched that it will link into all the other research that's being done currently in Australia. Uh, is Saving Grace as a project looking for anyone to share their stories or is there Absolutely. Any- Yes, so that would be absolutely wonderful. There's um, an opportunity still for people to do that. Uh, Rich and I would be delighted if there was anybody who felt moved to share their story. We are really guided by people in how they want to do that. Some people have preferred their story to be told through animation or to be written up without any photos or just through a photo. So people can really be in charge of how they tell that and what it looks like. So we would love it if people wanted to be a part of that. If you indeed would like to share your story for the Saving Grace Project, please contact them via email on info at mysavinggrace.org.au. If this has brought about any uncomfortable feelings or you need help and guidance, please call 1-800-RESPECT. That is 1-800-737-732. They are open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Oh, I can only dream of the dreams we share. tuned into Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 AM. 
That was a tune by Wilco called Open Up Your Mind. Now we are going to play a chat I had with the creator of Lucy's Project, Anna Ludwig. This is the second year for the conference for Lucy's Project. What compelled you in the first place to to organise such a conference? Well, when I started to learn about the issues of domestic violence and animal abuse, one of the first things I noticed was there was many people working in the movement around the country that weren't aware of the work of each other. And there was no organisation that was bringing these people together to help them to collaborate and to network and to resource share and resource build. And there was very much a need to create that sense of, of a movement and to create that sense of a network and to help grow the movement. So one of the most important starting points for us to really work together was to know who we're working with. So the conference that we held last year was an incredible way and the first opportunity that Australia had ever had to bring people from right across the country together to start those conversations. What did you personally learn from last year's conference? Oh, gosh, how long have you got? (laughs) (laughs) What what were some highlights? (laughs) Look, there was a lot of things came out of that conference and it inspired this year's conference. So for me, I realised a lot where we needed to do more work, uh, where people were interested in their energies going. I learned of some incredible initiatives that people had put together. We learned about um, ways that people have gotten around some of the bigger problems. We learned of problems that we hadn't even considered for people that were starting to, to move into um, creating pet-friendly shelters. And so we had the ability to um, preempt problems before they, they'd occurred so that we were in a position to be able to deal with them. One of the big things that I learned was that um, the issue of empathy building for children who have been exposed to animal violence uh, was, was something that most people had felt the need to have further training or experience or knowledge of programs across the country because traumatised children was something that was just so so commonly experienced by many of the organisations. And on that basis, I, I, I sought to invite guest speakers from abroad who had worked in this particular field. People are very confused when you talk about the link between domestic violence and animal abuse. Let's just try and explain what it is and how it manifests. Absolutely. It's one of those things that when I first mentioned it to people, people will think it's, it's two completely abstract and separate points. But then as soon as you explain it, it becomes obvious. So if we understand that up to 60 and some say more percent of Australian households have a pet involved and we look at the rates of domestic violence, you realise how many of those households are going to have pets involved. And unfortunately and very sadly, uh, a dog or other family pets are often the only source of comfort that a victim will have when they're living in, in often, often in secrecy in a violent household or trying to live in a violent household. The, the pet becomes, the animal becomes their, their protector often, their companion and their best friend. And many people are hesitant to leave a violent situation because there's no way they can take their animals. We're aware of the situation of, of rentals. It's very hard to get a rental with an animal. And we know that shelters are overfull. We know that a lot of shelters have very high kill rates and people just aren't willing to, to put their animals through that. And they don't want to be apart from them. So many people are choosing to sleep rough in their cars, often with their children. People are staying in domestic households longer than they should with their pets. 
Often as well, the pets themselves are the victims. So a perpetrator won't physically abuse a human, but will use the animal as a, as a proxy, as a form of psychological abuse on the human. See what I'm capable of doing, I could do this to you as well. And often we see animals maimed, killed, uh, permanently traumatised. You often hear cases of, you know, I don't, I don't if I, I, I'm cautious to not share traumatising images for people, but we hear it, some pretty horrific stuff that, that happens on a fairly regular basis to animals. Um, and I think something that is, is also really concerning is when a child is in a house where they've witnessed abuse towards an animal. Children are taught from birth to empathise and to relate to animals. So at birth we give them a teddy bear and then we set them in front of Peppa Pig and we set them in front of you know, the rabbits and the bunnies and all the, different, the, all the different little animals. And that's how they begin to understand their world is, is through animals. Now, at, at that early stage... If they're witnessing an animal being traumatised or abused, it can have a long-lasting traumatic effect on that child. And those, those, those scars are, you know, we, we, uh, very difficult, very difficult um, for that child to overcome and, and um, it can lead us to some, some very complicated places in later life. Mm. And it's something that, uh, that we, we are you know, greatly concerned by. Yeah, the more I learn about this issue, the more different facets and the more different ways that I find that um, animal abuse and, and domestic violence, are, you know, human violence and, and violence against animals are, are interrelated. As long as we continue to ignore violence against animals, we're going to ignore violence against all the vulnerable parts of our community. You are tuned in to Freedom of Species Animal Advocacy on the airwaves on 3CR 855 AM. We are speaking with Anna Ludwig, who coordinates a conference called Lucy's Project, which is all about the link between domestic violence and animal abuse. For this year's conference, it's just such a selection of speakers. Do you want to tell us who the speakers are this year or some of them? Sure, I'm a little bit starstruck by our lineup this year, to be honest. And to be honest, I feel very starstruck by the entire movement. It's my job to bring these people together, but it's their job to do the work on the ground. These, these people are all my heroes. So from the United States, we have uh, Dr. Frank Asioni, who many say is the father of the movement, and he has initiated many conversations um, around the world. Uh, and the idea of uh, domestic violence and animal abuse is... is is a concept well entrenched in, in public awareness in the United States. And so we've brought him over to, to talk to us about what that might look like when, when, the, when this movement is well known throughout the, country, throughout the, the area. And he's going to be talking with us about legislative reform and change and how that change has been powered in the United States, which is very exciting. We're also really excited to welcome uh, Ali Phillips, uh, who is a U.S. attorney, who has developed two programs, Task and Safety. So she, one of her programs talks about um, sheltering animals and families together. That's the Safety program. And she's actually set up guidelines and trainings for um, women's refuges and, and shelters who are looking to house animals alongside the human victims. So that's a really exciting initiative that's going to help us to really advance um, our, our on-the-ground knowledge here. She also set up the um, task, which is for therapy animals and supporting children, supporting children that have witnessed abuse against animals and helping them to recover from their trauma and helping them perhaps when they have um, it's been highly traumatised and gone within themselves begin to, to um, develop the empathy and to communicate 
what's going on in their lives with the help of animals. So it's a really interesting program. Um, and then we have um, Dr. Frida Scott-Park from Scotland, which is really exciting. She's headed up the Lynx Group. Uh, the Lynx organisation is um, an international organisation with many branches across the world, and she heads up the UK Scottish branch. And she will be talking to us about changes in the EU, which is pertinent at the moment, and within Scotland and the UK, and the veterinary response. She's a, she's a veterinary surgeon. We have a really strong presence from, from vets across the country and now internationally, and the role of veterinary veterinary pathology, forensic pathology, in identifying traumatic injuries to animals. So we've got a really good international perspective from countries where, not all of them, but from many of the countries where these issues are quite well known. So that's very exciting to us and for them to bring their training and knowledge to us. We're very excited that the New South Wales RSPCA Safe Beds for Pets program is helping to support us in promoting this event. And they will also be giving a presentation about their project. They're one of the first projects in this country to have adopted the ideas and to have put put it into action to actually provide somewhere for, for traumatised animals to seek safe shelter. We'll be hearing from quite a number of shelters across the country that have decided to house animals and human victims together. I'm scared I'm going to leave some of the incredible speakers out. Um, we're going to be hearing from academics, um, those who've worked in the area, but a really strong emphasis that we're going to have this year is on what we can do and, and not just improving the point, because we're all sold on the point. We all know that the, the link between domestic violence and, and animal abuse occurs. It's now a matter of moving it forward and seeing what we can do to put protections in place, look after these animals and humans and children. And So we've also got the New South Wales Police, domestic violence liaison officers, coming to have a chat with us. It's, it's a smorgasbord. It <laughs> certainly is. Different, different sectors. You've really sold the conference to anyone that's interested out there in finding out more about it. Can you tell us where the conference is and how much tickets are, etc.? Uh, this year, the conference will be held at the Portside Centre in Sydney on the 5th and the 6th of November. And um, it's right in the middle of the city in Sydney. Tickets are available through Try Booking. If you go to our website, www.lucysproject.com, uh, you can follow the links there to the Try Booking site and to find out about our different ticket prices depending on yep. who it is that's booking, if it, you're a speaker or a, or a, or a participant or a um, concession. Excellent. And, it's all, and it's, you can book through there and for our, we have dinners and other events going on as well. Thank you so much for your time, Anna. Okay, no, thank you very much for sharing the word. It's really important to us that the word of the movement gets out and that people begin to collect the very obvious dots once it's explained between domestic violence and animal abuse. If listening to this has triggered uncomfortable feelings or you need assistance, please call 1-800-737-732. That's 1-800-RESPECT. It's a 24-hour service or lifeline on 13-1114. In an article in The Age on Friday, Victorian dog breeders are moving their operations over state lines ahead of the Andrew government's proposed laws aimed at cracking down on puppy farms such as restricting the number of breeding dogs to 10. Uh, Industrial intensive puppy farms presently have up to 300 breeding dogs on site, consequently to keep profits lucrative. And as an example, Banksia Park Puppies has teamed up with the Melbourne Pet Shop to buy a half a million dollar property to breed dogs in New South Wales. 
let's hope that Victoria's stance on this issue will lead to a new national approach to avoid this. I spoke with Liz Walker, Chief Executive Officer of RSPCA Victoria. Liz, in 2014, Labor promised to act on illegal puppy farming and the new regulations will be rolled out in full by 2020. Are they enough? Well, I think it. Uh, I think it remains to be seen, uh, but I think there's been some significant changes in the past few years around the breeding of breeding and rearing of uh, dogs and cats. There were some changes last year which were really, really important in terms of limiting the number of litters that that a dog can have and making sure that they can only have five, and that there's uh, pre and post mating veterinary checks. There's also the traceability piece in pet shops which we anticipate will be usurped by the forthcoming changes that, that should mean that pet shops will be only able to sell or adopt out really shelter animals. So look I think that the changes that that the government is foreshadowing in terms of both the changes to pet shops only having pound and shelter animals and also the limiting of breeding animals uh, in facilities to 10 by 2020 is a really good step to actually setting a benchmark so that we can actually measure the effect on animal welfare into the future. When you referred to bringing down the number of litters Mm. to five, Mm. um, with the uh, breeding bitch then, does that mean there's also a time in between litters that is, has been regulated as well? Or My understanding is that there's not a specific time between litters in terms of the code. There is in um, for Dog Victoria members where they can, can't have more than three litters in 18 months. But what it does actually demand is that there are pre-mating vet checks and, and post-birth vet checks as well. So in order for a a bitch to be approved to breed, it needs a pre-mating check. So there is a check and balance in there. Uh, but it's not it's not specific in terms of time frame between litters. Online sales are a huge concern here, mm. and and consumers are, are pretty pretty vulnerable to to take the bait on their marketing spin as far as being ethical. Yeah. They can say and display that they are ethical breeders and say the right stuff. Um, people buy from these interstate breeders. How? long do you think until the rest of Australia follows uh, suit and that there is a national plan? Are you optimistic? I think, well, there's a couple of things. Firstly, in order to actually uh, improve animal welfare and make this better and and meet community expectations around having um, really having animals puppies and kittens and cats and dogs come into our lives where we know they've been ethically sourced and come from uh, an environment where their social, um, mental and physical well-being has been put first and foremost. It's a factor of having good laws. Uh, it's a factor of having good enforcement and regulation. And there's also an enormous piece around uh, education for consumers. And, um, and a really good example of the way you can think about that is if we go back to the way drink driving was dealt with uh, with the 0.05 campaign, which actually started in 1966 and went from 1976 it was um, you could do random breath tests and then since that time there's been lots of community education and adjustments in penalties and what have you. That's what we see happening here in Victoria in terms of the, the model that the Victorian government is working towards. The federal position around puppies and what have you, I think that's probably a longer haul game because one of the challenges of being in a federated structure is each of the states need to 
you know, need to cooperate with each other. We're certainly aware that a number of puppy factory operators are shifting their operations interstate and that's absolutely a, a really big concern and you can be rest assured that we're letting our, our member organisations in other states know about that. Uh, so it is, it's a really challenging space, Emma, and an enormous amount of work needs to be done around helping consumers understand what it is to ethically acquire an animal and what extent, what steps they need to take to make sure that they are getting animals that are ethically bred. And then further down the track, I think, as a community and as, uh, as regulators and enforcement agencies, if we can do make some further changes to make sure that it's easy... Uh, easier to ethically acquire an animal, that'll be, an that'll be enormous progress because at the moment, you're quite right, um, the internet makes it really, really hard. You're on Freedom of Species and we're speaking with Liz Walker, CEO of RSPCA Victoria, regarding the proposed new puppy and kitten farm regulations set to hopefully lead the way for the rest of Australia. As it stands at the moment and in advance of legislative changes coming through, pet shops are required to keep all the data on the animals that they have in their pet shop as to where they come from. They have to be microchipped. They need to know what the source is and they need to um, collate all that information as well and our inspectors and other council inspectors are out there in regulating that and enforcing that as well. So if someone were to purchase an animal from a pet shop they are totally within their rights and they should be able to be provided with all the information about where that animal came from and if people if the pet shop proprietors are not prepared to do that then I would um, actually uh, walk away from that and report that to the local council or the RSPCA. Now RSPCA got extra funding as part of this whole new regulation. Can you talk about what that funding is going to be used for? Sure. So we've been given $5 million over four years to crack down on puppy and kitten factories. What that means is that we have dedicated inspectorate resources to investigate and follow up cases where we suspect puppy factory and kitten factories are going on. It also means that we have dedicated veterinary resources and animal attendants to care for the animals that, that we seize out of these operations because it, there's an enormous amount of work to be done, <coughs> excuse me, not only from investigating and prosecuting these people, but also caring and rehabilitating the animals that we take out of these operations. So at the moment, just to give you a snapshot, well, since 2015, we've had 48, 48 investigations. Ten of them are likely to go through to prosecution. The others, are, four of them have actually resolved because properties became compliant but we have well in excess of 100 animals who are currently in our care that we're caring for and rehabilitating as a result of seizures. One of the arguments from a puppy breeder mm. uh, farmer, they defend their industry because you know we breed cows, sheep and chickens for profit of livestock. Why are dogs different? Why are we, why is the approach so different? Can you elaborate on, on this. It's an interesting one because it's like, in, in a way, he's got a point. There's a couple of things there. Mm. And one of our great concerns is that where there is money to be made, people will cut corners. And there's nothing philosophically wrong in the, in the democratic society we live with in Australia with people making money. We've all got to live. But it absolutely should not be at, at the expense of animal welfare. And what we believe the community expects and what we expect is that animals are raised in an environment where not only is their, their physical well-being looked after and that they have shelter and food and what have you, but also their health, so from a veterinary care and disease perspective. And then I think it's really important from an environmental 
uh, and a behavioural perspective that they're well socialised, that they understand what it's like to be a domestic dog. And I think that the um, my view is that the community would expect that if you get a puppy or a kitten, that it's be ra- been raised in a facility or a household where the animals understand what it's like to be in a backyard, to come inside, to walk on the street, to play ball and to have all those experiences that we that the pet owning community knows is what is what is being a dog is about. They don't expect that the animals are coming out of an institutionalised uh, environment where although the puppy's going to come into your house and have a nice life, it's its mother and its father were, abs- were institutionalised in cages and pens with little or no social activity and certainly didn't know what it was like to to be able to come inside at night time and play in the backyard with the kids and go down to the park and walk up and down the street and understand what traffic was. You know, I don't think it's okay that there are um, breeding stock, for want of a better word, that are having to endure substandard existence so that someone can make money so that we can all have animals. I don't think that's what the community expects either. Yes, people are allowed to make money um, from what they do and they love and that they're passionate about, but when it comes to dog breeding it's a very it's a very gray area isn't it well, I think when you're it's really to... I think it's really emotional and people really get very involved in it at the end of the day what's important for us is that the animals are raised in a high state of welfare both the, the parent animals as well as the, the puppies or the kittens and good animal welfare does cost money you know, it, it, uh, you need to provide good food, good accommodation, good, good standards of veterinary care and what have you. We know that there's, within the Dog Victoria community, there's any number of breeders in that community that have only one or two breeding animals and they breed them and they may, and usually in, in high standards, and they will charge what the market will bear. And as far as I suppose we're concerned, if, you, if people are prepared to pay that, then there's no real issue with that. I suppose that's market forces type of argument. But if you want a particular breed and it's been bred to high standards and there's not very many of them, then I suppose, I suppose that market forces might say that you may pay a higher amount. We, we know that some animals are being sold for four, three, four, and $5,000. Uh, if they're bred under very good animal welfare in a nice place where they're well socialised and well cared for, it's not for RSPCA or anyone else to say what's okay to pay for that animal. It's a market, uh, a market forces argument, and that's a, a decision for individuals to make. Because what really should drive us is the welfare of the animal. I think a lot of people don't realise that what one must figure out when they are sourcing a, a puppy, if they really want a puppy and not a rescue dog, they want a certain breed, is that there is something about them not just being a registered company and. Mm a member of a kennel club. Can you just elaborate on that for a while with the domestic animal business? Yes. At the moment, the current regulations say that if you have three or more fertile female dogs or three or more fertile cats, then you've got to register as domestic animal business unless you're a member of an applicable organisation such as Dogs Victoria where you can pretty much have up to 10 fertile animals. There's some other little things around around the details of that. But at the end of the day... If there's three or more animals or or thereabouts, you should be actually asking people, are you registered as a domestic animal business? If they're not, that's a problem. People, There's a number of people who just have one or two breeding animals and they might have a litter every few years for reasons that are their own, but um, they're perfectly able at, at the moment to breed those animals for 
for sale. And so what you really need to go back to, I think, as a consumer, uh, is, is something like uh, going to our website where we have the Smart Puppy Buyer's Guide, and it takes you through the steps which is essentially, let's identify what sort of animal you like. Make sure that the breed and the age of animal that you're choosing fits your lifestyle. So firstly, do your homework. And secondly, if you found somewhere, whether it's a, a, a breeder or, or a shelter or, or a, um, a rescue group, you need to go and, and see those animals. If it is a breeder, you must the mother animal you should try and see the father animal and you need to go and visit where those animals were raised so you can satisfy yourself that they have been raised in a situation where both their physical and their mental health and socialization needs have been addressed so it is it's a, you know it's a big investment but on the other hand having an animal and taking a dog or cat into your life it can be, it's a 10 to 20 year investment and they are part of your family so doing that work up front is really important so that that's what I would say about that. The other thing is just in terms of getting an animal, I think we need to change the paradigm about what sort of animal you want and where you're going to get it from because the truth is that the animals that come through rescue organisations and pounds and shelters, there are any number of puppies that come through there as well and loads of kittens still, unfortunately, that come through. And they're well assessed. Our veterinarians and the, the temperament testing people know a lot about these animals and they, they provide the new owner with a substantial amount of information so that you can really be sure about what the needs are of the animal that you're acquiring. And I think, actually, that's something that we like to see people do is that there is a, a view out there from some areas of the community that the rescue dogs or shelter animals are, are damaged goods or dented models. It's really not the case. There's an enormous proportion, over I think 50% of the animals that are surrendered to us are surrendered not for any behavioural or medical reasons but purely because people's life circumstances have changed so dramatically that they feel like they need to you know, give them to us for a second chance. And it's usually a life-changing matter. It might be getting older. It's often rental accommodation problems or moving uh, to a place where they can no longer take their animals. So really thinking about where you get that animal from and what it, what sort of animal it is that you would you would like and what's going to best fit your lifestyle is an important um, important part of the process. I did hear one breeder come back saying that rescue dogs aren't suitable for the modern lifestyle but you've just nailed that one on the head. It's just that's just complete nonsense. You know, the our, in our guys have got so much and, and it's not just RSPCA, it's um there's so much expertise out there in other shelters and pounds and rescue groups and they can say, even my dog who I got from Lord Smith a number of years ago, two years old, I got her and I knew that I had a, four children, my youngest was two, and I knew that Princess Esther, my dog, had come out of a broken marriage. It was really tragic and everyone was terribly sad, but I knew that she'd grown up with a two-year-old and so I got this dog who was bomb-proof around children, was a Labrador who was house-trained, who even sat before she had her meal, which was outstanding given that she was a Labrador. And, <laughs> um, and, and, you know, all that I had to... But what I also knew about it was that she was just appalling on the lead. She obviously, in all the marriage breakdown, hadn't been outside very often. And so all I had to do was work with her is walking on a lead. And, you know, I think whatever animal you get, you have to invest in their, in their health and well-being. Um, and I just knew that when I got her, you know, I was going to have to be hauled around the streets where I live while I um, managed to train her to walk on a lead. And it was a small price to pay because on every other aspect, she ticked all the boxes for me. She was perfect and we adore her.
You are on 3CR at double five AM, Freedom of Species, and that concludes the show for today. So if you are interested in the Lucy's Project Conference, please pique that interest and have a look on their website because it is a, a really interesting area. It's one that intersects, you know, um, all the animal advocates out there, but also, you know, the human rights advocates and domestic violence advocates out there. There's a lot of work to do and it's... Um, it's just really beautiful finding out the work that's being done. I'd like to thank very much Lisa Craig, Anna Ludwig, Richard Wainwright, Phil Arco and Liz Walker. If you'd like to contact us on Freedom of Species, please do on info at freedomofspecies.org, Twitter or the Facebook or via the website. Thanks so much for tuning in. I have to get out of here because there is the next show in Psychedelia, which deals about all kind of issues around drugs and drug control and a very interesting show as well. Taking us out is a tune by Cat Empire called Prophets in the Sky. See you next week. You saw the carnival in Rio You saw them dancing in the sun But listen to your corazón Can you believe You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.